This is Language Made Difficult, a polyphonous part of the Specgram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. Sherry Wells Jensen. Hi there. And Bill Spruill. Hey. Also joining us again on the program is Tim Pouliou. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks for having me. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Today's theme is b- you, you b- I've got three language-related items. Two are true, one is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Tim, I just want to remind you that you can go after everyone else, especially if you are sure you know the answer. <laughs> which you probably will. <laughs> it's frequently the case, yes. How fair is that to have someone play this game who actually knows things? Yeah, it's rough for all of us. <laughs> it's embarrassing is what it is. This time, rather than a random order, the items are in chronological order. Item number one, the word rooster was derived from roost around 1772 as a puritanical alternative to cock in order to avoid the sexual connotation of that word. Item number two, the word roach was shortened from cockroach around 1837 on the mistaken notion that cockroach is a compound in order to avoid the sexual connotation of the first syllable. Item number three, in 1929, H.L. Mencken ridiculed similar calls to replace the word cocksure with plain sure, a suggestion made on the correct notion that cocksure is a compound, and again, in order to avoid the sexual connotation of the first syllable. All right, who'd like to go first? I sense a theme in these quiz questions, but I don't want to go first. I'm far from cocksure of the answer this time. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) So I could go first. Well, remember, if you go last, you get hints. If he's going to go first, I could go last. You don't get hints. (laughs) I'll give you a hint, Sherry. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> I'll go first. All right. How long am I allowed to muse and talk my way through them? <laughs> Until we get frustrated. For as long as you're entertaining. <laughs> so about five <laughs> seconds. And then you get the hook. Well, so Rooster, 1772. First off, they all seem right to me, or could be right, or at least could be folk etymologies that people have believed are right. But Cockroach, 1837. Yep. I think that one's probably true because it's 1837 and it's the Victorian era. And so I can see people being particularly worried about the term cock in that period. And uh, you threw in it was mistaken notion that cockroach is a compound. That sounds like something true that you would throw in just to demonstrate your and our erudition, since we all know it's from Kukaracha. So in honor of your and our erudition, I'm going to say two is true. Number three. Just having H.L. Mencken ridiculing anything seems plausible to me. (laughs) On the other hand, cocksure doesn't mean the same thing as sure, at least not to me. Cocksure means cockily sure or overly confident, like a rooster. But I could still see him ridiculing other people for saying that, even though Queen Victoria was long dead in 1929. (laughs) I'll come back to number three. Number one, this rooster is American mostly, and cock is British. So on the one hand, I could see Puritans in America coming up with rooster. On the other hand, 1772 seems a little bit late for them to be puritanical. And that was a period when the Puritans said were still around, but most of their residue of Puritanism was not having businesses open on Sunday and being anti-Catholic. Also, they had lots of other words for cock, right? They had guns, which had gun cocks on them, and they had weather cocks, and they had cock fighting. 1772 for Americans seems right, coming up in the 1700s with an alternative word to the British. But if they're replacing cock in that, why didn't it replace it in the gun cock, where if anything, the anatomical connection seems a little bit more obvious. If I had a coin, I would flip it, but I don't. So I'm going to say number two is true, number three is true, and number one is false. 
All right, Tim, always full of all those facts, which, as Sherry points out, are not really traditional in this game. But (laughs) (laughs) it's really counter to the spirit of the whole thing to know things, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Actual knowledge (laughs) goes against the spirit. (laughs) But we like Tim, so we let him in. The knowledge killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Hmm. Deep. All right, who wants to go next? Keith. Keith? No, thanks. I went first last time. And you didn't go first this time. You're next. All right, all right, all right. They all sound true to me, too. That's what I think. I like two the best, the clipping of cockroach to roach, but I just like it because it's clipping. I don't have any opinion about this. I could flip a coin like Tim would have if he had had a three-headed coin. I don't have a three-headed coin either. If your coin had three heads, wouldn't it just always come up heads? (laughs) Yes, and that's so much easier. You always know what to expect from. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go against H.L. Mencken here. I'm going to say that H.L. Mencken did not ridicule calls to replace Cocksure with Sure. Although, as Tim says, he was good at ridiculing things. But I have to pick something, so that's it. Okay. Bill or Sherry? <sighs> okay, I'll go. And I don't have a good story for this. So I'm just going to have to go with things I like and things I don't like. Because really, honestly, it could be any of these things. I like number two. People would do that. That's just one of those folk etymology things. I think number two is probably true. Um, I, I see. I have. Yeah. Hmm. I think that I can. I think that if I were in the right kind of really crabby mood, I could rustle up some kind of nastiness about people who think that cocksure is wrong to say. And I could be all indignant about how that just means a chicken. So get over it. I could make those sentences now if I weren't so lazy. So I'm going to go with number one as being the false one, mostly because, I don't know, I think that's something that roosts could be anything, right? It could have been the hen. And so I don't think it necessarily had to mean, I'm talking myself out of this, but I'm going to I'm going to be steadfast. Besides, <laughs> So I'm going to go with number one for no really good reason, except that one who roosts wouldn't have to be the male chicken. It could be, you know, any kind of bird. That's not a good story. No matter how I keep talking about it, it keeps not getting any better, this story. Okay. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'm pretty convinced that if I talk about it more, the story will get worse. Maybe I'm you better gonna... switch to three. <laughs> no, I'm, not I'm sticking with one because that was my initial idea because it was first chronologically and because Tim said so. Okay. It's outside the box. Those older things number four. Bill? <laughs> <laughs> so? Well... On number one, I was going to say it seemed kind of light for actual Puritans to me, but that is a is. Are you spelling it with a capital P or a lowercase p? Lowercase. Okay, so that kind of obviates the argument that it's actual literal Puritans. It sounds kind of believable to me, although something about it is bothering me. Number two sounds true for the reasons everyone has been saying. Number three has the potential to be a double fake out because... Trey, you know that we know H.L. Mencken liked to ridicule things. (laughs) And so you might be putting that in so that we'll shy away from it, which means you want us to shy away from it, which means we should keep it. The other thing that's bothering me about number three is I'm pretty certain that Sure was already in use by that time. So technically, they wouldn't be replacing the word with sure. They would just be avoiding the first one. And so I'm going to pick number three as being the false one. Bill, the Iocane powder is in both goblets. (laughs) (laughs) 
They're all true. You guys parse these things so ridiculously carefully. (laughs) (laughs) It's self-preservation. But I don't think that hard. So when you think that hard, you're just (laughs) doing things. I don't know. I did mean puritanical with a little p, so it wasn't actual literal Puritans. That wasn't my intent. We couldn't hear that. Tim, did you have to give away that cockroach came from Cucaracha? Not everybody knows that. (laughs) Everyone on this broadcast knows that. I don't know. We knew that. Yeah, we knew that. We even know the song. Yeah, we and we know all the words for icky bugs in all the tropical places that we've been. Because you have to know that when you go there. You have to know what to say. Ah, it's crawling on you. You got to know the local language. And I didn't intend with cocksure and sure to mean that sure was a new word (laughs) to completely replace just that you should stop using one and use the other. So you guys just like did a number on all of them. Anyway, let's review them in chronological order. Rooster is in fact derived from roost. So one who roosts is a rooster. So that one is true. All the dates and everything. Yeah. Tim. But are you sure it was a puritanical alternative? That was me editorializing. (laughs) I felt that was puritanical. Oh, that's what I was objecting to. Oh, well. I don't think it was. I have a Spike Gilday story about rooster, but I know that rooster is derived from roost, which Spike Gilday, linguist extraordinaire at Oregon, who grew up on a farm with roosters, didn't know until I pointed it out to him many years after he left the farm. (laughs) He was shocked by it. I mean, I doubt it was puritanical. I still think it's wrong, as you told it to us. Whether that's a lie, a damn lie, or just linguistics, I'm not sure. I'll go with that answer. (laughs) As everyone surmised, roach was shortened from cockroach. And so that was the third one. The false one is about cocksure. There was, as far as I know, no call in particular that anybody listened to to replace it with sure. So let's see. It is a compound. And it has been generally avoided by some people in order to avoid the sexual connotation of the first syllable. But the OED notes, the word was originally perfectly dignified and habitually used in the most solemn connections. Interestingly, D.H. Lawrence did coin the term henshore as a female version in 1929. So that's where I got my date. Mm-hmm. Checking Google Ingram Viewer after writing this up, I found that cocksure started gaining ground around 1880, peaked in 1934, and has been declining since. Mm-hmm. Also of note... Occurrences of Henshore in Google Ingram Viewer mostly look like OCR errors, or there's a 19th century poetic Scots homograph, which is probably not pronounced the same, that means a swaggering young fellow, which is interesting because it potentially makes it an incredibly obscure autoantonym, if my reading of Henshore is correct. Emphasis on the incredibly. Uh, yes. Incredible. Speaking of <laughs> things that are incredible, let's talk about the scores. I think they're improving. <laughs> For you, yes. Now, Bill, unfortunately, has nowhere to go but down because he has a perfect streak so far. But I've regained ground, as has Keith, and I'm 80%. Keith's 60%. Sherry's at 40%. Tim, doing a good job making sure keeping Sherry out of last place there. (laughs) The guests have 20%. I'm sorry. I have to file a protest with a higher authority, Michael Tomasello or Noam Chomsky. So you have no evidence that it was a puritanical alternative to (laughs) cock. Just made that up. He just <laughs> makes up all of these things. <laughs> so I would like to be named in the suit then, Tim, when you file it. Yes. I get my points back in two years. Okay. I have a good online etymological dictionary that I like called etymonline.com. I recommend that to everyone. It's a very good one, yes. And in fact, it says in the notes for Rooster, favored in the U.S. originally as a Puritan alternative to cock after it acquired the secondary sense of penis. Ah, okay. So I did change Puritan to Puritanical because I just like that word better. <laughs> that's what threw us off. That's what threw me off. Uh-huh. So wait a minute. Your source is the internet? Not random internet, but... 
<laughs> I have many sources and I check them against each other. Yeah, Edom Online is very good. Yeah, I like it a lot. How many seconds before you read that had that entry been edited, though? <laughs> <laughs> you can't edit Edom Online. It is not public. I mean, not crowdsourced. It's, it's not publicly editable. Yeah. Edit, editable? Editable? How many syllables should that be? Four. Yeah. Four. Four. <laughs> That's all the time we have for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. We'll be back with Language in the News after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult presenteras av Tobias Högberg. Varsågoda. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Valhalla Institute for Totally Random Research. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Simon M. Tating Memorial Scholarship Fund, which seeks to encourage promising students who share Professor Tating's love of rare phonemes, experimental metaphonotactics, and imitatory exploration of impossible or near-impossible phonetic and phonotactic articulatory combinatorics. The fund has been endowed by generous gifts from Professor Tating's colleagues, peers, friends, and family, particularly his loving wife and six children and grandchildren. And Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Paul Ibbotson and Michael Tomasello have recently written an article entitled Evidence Rebuts Chomsky's Theory of Language Learning, and the article appeared in the September 2016 issue of Scientific American. For hardcore adherents of universal grammar, this article has an obvious fatal flaw and can be dismissed out of hand, obviating the need to pretend to actually take it seriously, because in the second paragraph, the authors write, these capabilities coupled with a unique human ability to grasp what others intend to communicate allows language to happen. As soon as they allow for any unique human ability, they have lost. Because whatever that unique human ability is, clearly that's what universal grammar is. However, since we are not all hardcore adherents of universal grammar, we'll take a little bit of a closer look. So my contrarian impulses are pointing in conflicting directions here. In general, I've never found most of universal grammar to be very compelling, but the case against universal grammar based on child language acquisition, as presented here, seems especially weak to me. In particular, they make a straw man argument saying that Chomsky's theories, quote, stipulate that young children come equipped with the capacity to form sentences using abstract grammatical rules, unquote, and that the theory thus fails because children don't speak in complete sentences. However, young children also can't grasp objects, run the 100-yard dash, or keep from pooping their pants, but no one would argue they don't normally come equipped with the capacity to eventually do those things. Anyway, they expand on the language acquisition examples, but it always feels like a straw man to me, and they claim that because their data failed to falsify universal grammar, universal grammar has committed the grave scientific blasphemy of being unfalsifiable, which I thought was a bit of a stretch. On the other hand, they did get in a sick burn. They said, Retreats to this type of claim are common in declining scientific paradigms that lack a strong empirical base. Consider, for instance, Freudian psychology and Marxist interpretations of history. Ouch. Anyway, I'm actually sympathetic to the usage-based <laughs> theories, which they propose as their alternative view. They fit nicely with my own unfalsifiable theory that it's statistics all the way down. Because conveniently, anything that's rule-based can be approximated to an arbitrarily fine degree using stochastic models. Thus, my theory obviates paying attention to future theoretical developments in syntax, because it's not only unfalsifiable, it's also very mathy. Nonetheless, I feel like we have a problem here where the rebel forces plan yet another surprise attack on the supposed headquarters of the evil empire. And then once they blow it to smithereens and start celebrating, the evil empire says, uh, that was just a porta potty. Stop acting like you won. What we really need is for both sides to come together, use universal grammar to make clear and testable predictions, and then test them. But why would either the rebels or the evil empire ever agree to that? I don't know. Finally, while I will concede that the Gazer mibbed the Toma, it doesn't seem that anyone has properly addressed the Gavagai in the room. So, Ling nerds, if you're still awake, are you rebel scum or are you part of the evil empire? Or, worst of all, are you part of the League of Neutral Wimps? Keith. <laughs> 
Bill, Tim, Sherry. I would simply like to say that providing food and supplies to both sides is a perfectly respectable way of making one's living. (laughs) 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 However, I do feel that I should point out a couple of additional sort of quirks in the argument there. The article was talking about the unique capability as being that of paying attention to another human and modeling their intentions. And whatever it is you say about universal grammar or Chomsky's theories, they don't care about people whatsoever. (laughs) So that, in fact, is one of the few capabilities that it doesn't address. That does not mean the article is disproving universal grammar, because whatever can currently be said to be true about the internal workings of language is by definition what Chomsky must have meant all along by his word (laughs) choice that no one else understood. Mm -hmm. It's not that this is a clincher argument by any means, but criticizing it on the basis of being able to model other people's intentions as being universal grammar, I don't think is one of the weak points. Fair enough. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think that these guys actually have completely missed the point of Chomsky's theories. Bear with me for a second, and I'll explain. So they want to say that Chomsky's theories predict something about how children acquire language, because as they go on about it in great length, the theories are supposed to describe this innate grammatical machinery that's been described in various ways. But nowadays, I guess they have these little switches they flip saying pro-drop or not pro-drop and so on and so forth. And the children are pre-equipped with all this and they're going to learn the right settings based on the input they get and come up with proper grammar, right? They're going to come up with that, which is grammatical. But I don't think that's what Chomsky was actually doing. So I've been through that process as a child, which of course I don't remember anything about, but I've been through the other process, which Chomsky was describing. And that is the process of learning to make grammaticality judgments, which is what linguists need to do. And that's what Chomsky actually knows about, right? And uh, in fact, Tim can corroborate my story that you can sit around with a group of linguists in training and read example sentences out of a linguistics textbook and guess or vote or imagine whether they're grammatical or not, and then try it again several years later and find that you've gotten better at it. You're better at agreeing with the authors. So I think that's what Chomsky's theories are actually designed to predict. But that sounds like a usage-based theory, based on your anecdote. (laughs) That's not an anecdote. That was data. Data is not the plural of anecdote. And that was only one anecdote. (laughs) But it generalizes well. Oh, right. You come from the squishy side. (laughs) You can generalize from a single case. Generalizing, that's another word for inspiring. So if I can inspire you with my anecdote, then you will generalize it automatically. I do have a question, Trey. Are you adhering to the outmoded dogma that data is a plural? (laughs) Yes, they are. I do not. But I like the quote, data is not the plural of anecdote, so. (laughs) So data could be the singular, or better, the collective of anecdote, since it is etymologically a collective and not a plural, if you go back far enough. Are you saying we should say data are not the plural of anecdote? (laughs) No, I'm saying data is a singular. It's a collective singular. (laughs) The point is to get at people and call them out on their use of anecdotes as data, not to get in a discussion about different forms of plurals and collectives and mass nouns and count nouns and all that kind of stuff. I'm sorry, I totally missed your intention there. 
<laughs> I, I must have read the wrong article. <laughs> it is really important, though, to keep to stick to your whole thing about data being a plural, because that is sometimes the only mechanism by which my students have to stay awake, is they can track when I do it right and when I do it wrong. And that if they need that, you know, I'm happy to provide that. Your students stay awake? <laughs> well, only when well, we're talking about data. I'd like to experience that sometime in my classes, but maybe not in this lifetime. But I have to say that it seems to me to be the case that, which you have to say it that way, right? It seems to me to be the case that this whole Chomskyan theory is in fact quite powerful. It's in fact quite predictive, and it's really a brilliant piece of human knowledge. It's just not a, at all about language, and that was never its purpose. I mean, anyone who sat through this in any kind of graduate seminar has experienced the reality that this is actually sort of a master plot to give poor, overworked grad students the sleep they need by giving them this material to read, by talking about it in class. And no matter <laughs> what they do, the poor dears, they'll just slip gently into the sleep that they need. And so I think that we should just leave the artifice that it's about language up there. And for the good of all graduate students everywhere, and some undergrads too, who desperately need a little extra sleep, that's what this is for. And I feel bad about saying that out loud in front of people, because we really shouldn't say it, because then, you know, cat's out of the bag and that sort of thing. And well, in defense of Chomsky, which is something I've never said in my life before, <laughs> I can say that, as Bill has pointed out many times, he explicitly grants, as uh, Keith was also saying, that his theory is not about language, it's about grammar. And language is only an epiphenomenon of grammar. And therefore, grammaticality has nothing to do with acceptability either, since acceptability, after all, has to do with humans. And grammaticality either is or is not based on the form of the theory. So it's perfect as stands. And therefore, Tomasello, being a psychologist, is concerned with language. And as Sherry was saying, Chomsky is not. So no big deal. You also invited the wrong guest on the show. I should have invited someone who actually likes Chomsky's theories so that someone would be standing up for him other than me. I'm doing the best that I can, but as you can see, it's not a very good job. I think you may have proved Sherry's point, however, because during your discussion, your explanation back there a little ways, I, I did not off for a moment. <laughs> good. So what I get from this discussion is that Keith and Bill are rebel scum and Sherry and Tim are with the evil empire. No, I'm rebel scum also. <laughs> I'm just being contrarian for the sake of it. Okay. Hmm. I would also count myself in the rebel scum camp. Boy, I feel bad about being in the evil empire. So I'm perfectly willing to defect at any moment. Okay. You can deny it. That was just my read on it. <laughs> yeah, I do deny it. Absolutely. 100%. That's exactly what an agent of the evil empire would say. Be quiet. Don't say <laughs> We'll never trust you again. <laughs> Did you ever, though? I mean, really? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I do own a ukulele and a banjo, so I mean... This model also explains fairly well the frequent turnover in the actual theories in the camp, because there can only be two Sith. <laughs> <laughs> Really? Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. There can only be two at a time? Yes. And wow, there's a master that. and there's an apprentice. And so old style TG got killed off. And then we had government and binding next, right? That's right. It was. And then it was not innately superior. So it died. And then it was principles and parameters. And, you know, so it kind of fits. Well, then minimalism. But going back to the Sith. So if you have an apprentice, are you supposed to eventually kill your apprentice before he kills you? Or I never actually that understood that part, because why would you ever take an apprentice if the apprentice was supposed to kill you at some point? But 
you know, it's movies. Yeah, I believe that you take an apprentice, and then when the apprentice is strong enough, the apprentice kills the master. And Chomsky has frequently battled his ex-apprentices and generally defeated them. And then eventually he turns into a little puff of blue smoke and dances around the fire, right? Isn't that how that goes? <laughs> I don't think you've been watching the same movies we've been watching. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, yeah, there's that one set of them that I just can't watch. But that's what happened to, what's his name, right? He turned into a little ghost thing. And- oh, yeah, okay. See, he did. <laughs> when Obi-Wan comes back as a force projection or whatever it is. Yeah. He doesn't He's dance, though. He just kind of stands there looking forcey. He nods his head benevolently. <laughs> so while we have kept the nerd level high, we have strayed off topic. <laughs> so I'm going to bring it back and wrap it up unless anybody has anything else. Uh, I'll just say, Trey, you really are very much a usage-based person since most of them say it is statistics all the way down. Excellent. So you're 100% rubble scum. Congratulations. I am willing to accept that. And with that, we will end our discussion about language in the news, and we'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Gramado Chaoticon Long-Term Care Facility for Decommissioned Mad Social Scientists. Has your linguist, anthropologist, or historian gotten to be too much for you to handle at home? We at the Gamma Chi facility understand your mad social scientists' needs and desires. They just want someone to appreciate that their theories are just so perfect, and that if the data doesn't fit, the world must be changed to make it fit. We know, we understand, and we can help. The Grimetto Chaoticon Long-Term Care Facility for Decommissioned Mad Social Scientists cannot accept residents who require syndrome betting, epaulets, or conspiracy theories more than two levels deep. The Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Linguistic Satire. If linguistics doesn't have humor, it's headed for extinction. Language Made Difficult is still brought to you by the Kevin Bickelson Foundation. Listen, Hurly Burly, whatever your name is, you want to come over here where I can do some embodied deconstruction? I've got some perlocutionary force just for you. It'll blow your umlauts right off, you scurrilous Norwegian. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, for our last segments, we want to talk about a topic that I don't think we've ever discussed before, and we're going to pose the question, what will your book be titled? But there's some background. If you're a linguist, you know that lots of famous linguists have written books which they title modestly language. A lot of them have subtitles. So here's some examples. So Sapir had one in 1921 entitled Language, an Introduction to the Study of Speech. Bloomfield, 1933, is not so modest. He just said language. And then we've got Pike, definitely the longest one anybody ever put out there, language in relation to a unified theory of the structure of human behavior. And then there's lots of other people, Trask, language, the basics. More recently, Everett, language, the cultural tool. Interestingly, as far as I know, Chomsky has not written a book entitled Language, although there are several books with his name on them that are things like Language and Mind or On Language, but those are collections of essays. Before we get to the question of what you're going to title your book, which of these existing books do you like best? Does anyone have one that you think that is the best of the collection? Mr. I would say Everett's book because I haven't read it. And (laughs) because I haven't read it, I don't know that there's anything wrong with it. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Mr. Slater. Sapir's is the best read. Sapir's is the best read? Yeah. And uh, uh, novelists can read Sapir and actually enjoy it. Mm. Mr. Slater. Well, that was my experience, too. I've only read two of these books, one of them being Sapir and the other being Bloomfield. And as I recall, I enjoyed reading Sapir and I admired Bloomfield, which probably means that <laughs> Sapir was the better book. Or maybe Bloomfield was the better book, but I liked Sapir better. <laughs> Mr. Slater. Sapir was the shortest, wasn't it? So it gets points It is that. quite short, yes. It is Does, quite short. And Everett's book gets points for being the one that I stayed awake during the most of. 
<laughs> okay. Mr. Slater, Mr. Slater. Yes. This question was not on the syllabus and I did not prepare for this question. <laughs> True. Did you read any of these books, Trey? Superior, Bloomfield, Pike? I have read some of them, yes. Did you like I have some of them that I haven't read and I've read some of them uh, that I can't remember. So I think I like them all roughly the same. <laughs> that is no mental representation at all. <laughs> You remember the title. I guess I would actually have to say then there's a very slight advantage for Everett's book because it is the one I'm most likely to read in the future. If I remember right, the hard copy of the Bloomfield book was the one that it was exactly the right size to prop up a sort of a crooked table that I had in grad school that needed a book under <laughs> one of the legs. But so- you can actually hide behind pikes in the event of violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll stop bullets. <laughs> so I'm still intending to read that Bloomfield book, but I have to get it out from under that table leg, and I'd have to find something the right thickness to replace it, and I haven't done that yet. <laughs> yeah, what you need is an MA student to write a thesis for you. <laughs> that would be a good use for a first draft. Definitely. Well, okay, so now if we offer you each your own publishing contract, but your book has to begin its title with the word language, what will your content be? And will you have a subtitle? And if Wait, so, con- what? Content was not on the question either, I don't think. I yeah. Think. What are you going to have in your book entitled language? Ooh, ooh, Mr. Slater? Mr. Slater? <laughs> yes. This question was on the syllabus, and I did prepare an answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> great. Well, why don't you just start us off there? <laughs> My book would be called Language, How to Mash Words and Numbers Together in Ways Nature Never Intended for Fun and Profit. And it would just be a poorly edited collection of my haphazard, infrequent, and inconsistent Reddit comments explaining things badly and giving mediocre career advice. (laughs) Target audience? Uh, People who would read comments on Reddit but don't. (laughs) (laughs) And as for content, the TLDR is... The Specram book is awesome. LaTeX is nice, but it lacks features that Microsoft frickin' Word has. Computational linguistics is more computation than linguistics and thus more marketable and more profitable. The plethora of free Specram content on the web obviates the need to buy the Specram book. The phrase nasal aggressive voiceless feeler trill is awesome. Computational linguistics and algorithms are more comprehensible than magical. And the Specram book is really awesome. So buy it unless you can't, then it's available free on the web. You've just almost verbatim repeated the syllabus for my Linguistics 1 course. <laughs> it's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Tim. Well, what's going to be in your book entitled Language? With uh, I have a question. Title? I mean, many books are titled Language, but others are titled Linguistics. No, 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 no. That's something entirely different. Language is that thing out there. Linguistics is some ephemeral. I mean, we just had a long discussion about how nobody buys Chomsky anymore, right? And that's linguistics. What we're interested in here is language. But the books that you mentioned, Sapir and Bloomfield, were both meant as textbooks. And Bloomfield was actually usable as a textbook. Yeah, yeah. Textbook is okay. So textbooks, they go back and forth being called language or linguistics. We have an introduction to language or language, its structure and use, but then we have linguistics or contemporary linguistics or so on. I just like the cachet of not having to deal with anything real like language and call it linguistics. (laughs) I recommend that the title of Tim's book would be Language, How Becoming a Linguistics Professor Makes You a Contrary and Pain in the Butt. (laughs) (laughs) That was long before I was a linguistics professor. Anyway, my book would be titled, if it had to be titled Language, it would have language in very small font, uh, and then in language, <laughs> linguistics, colon, an introductory course. 
And here, <laughs> Bloomfield uh, tradition would be a textbook containing, in the order that God intended in the great chain of being, <laughs> phonetics, phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, and pragmatics, historical linguistics, and then stop there. Uh, the rest are details. Wait a minute, you have historical linguistics last? It's the apex. Yeah, I agree with that. It's the foundation. No, it you're building where you are. Build your way up from phonetics. I think it's a bad <laughs> idea to try to do historical linguistics without knowing phonetics first. <laughs> that could be true. One of my professors in grad school had studied at Chicago some years prior. This would have been in the 1750s or something. <laughs> Somebody there, was Floyd Lounsbury there? I think that's who he was describing. Believed that you needed to get your phonetics right before you moved on to anything else. And so he never finished his first text transcription. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Bill? Well, I found this rather easy because you made the mistake of telling me what the title had to start with, but you didn't say it had to end anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) And I've read 18th century books. In the style of such tomes, my title is Language, colon, Being, comma, a compendium of descriptions of the diverse tongues of mankind, together with their sundry organizational principles, categories, and components, accompanied by illustrative data sets, listings of peculiar curiosities, and handy mnemonics, with an appendix of nutritious fieldwork recipes and a guide to emergency medicine. <laughs> As for the contents, you just got it. (laughs) All you need is the 18 pages of the title and you're done. Yeah, right. There's no need for any elaboration. (laughs) That's beautiful. That's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Book titles are a relatively recent invention. You used to just start on the first page and the first page was the cover. I forgot to tell you that it's a requirement in publishing now that your title be something that can be tweeted. <laughs> and Just we're going to have to make some changes in Twitter, it sounds like. <laughs> Easily done. Just take a picture of it and tweet it anyway. That's what people do. There you go. That's right. So this would not be the title of my book because I can't make it work, but I've long thought that Pike's title was brilliant in that you can rearrange the words and it still sounds meaningful. So you can make it language in relation to the unified behavior of structure of human theory, where theory um, (laughs) has a language of the unified behavior of structure of human relations, or so on. And so I think all the various permutations of those should be different books written by different linguists, but I'm not sure what mine would be, so I think I'll stick with my linguistics and introductory course. (laughs) Tim, if your font is small enough that no one can even see the language, but it's going to sort in a list of books. <laughs> There'll be language, 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 linguistics in the middle. Ah, it would stand out. It would. That's good. Ooh. Oh, thank you. Excellent ploy. Good point. I'll good give point. you a cut of the royalties. Okay. <laughs> so my book is going to be titled Language, colon, What Linguists Wish They Knew How to Explain About It in Layman's Terms. That sounds useful. What are you trying to do? That was wrong with you. It would be a book to describe real linguistics for real non-linguists. It would be the perfect expression of what linguists actually think or what I actually think in terms that non-linguists would find understandable and compelling. No one has apparently just, written this book. You're actually trying to sell that? I mean, what? You, I didn't think linguistics books were ever supposed to sell. I don't want it to sell. I want it to influence. Mm. What is the scope 
scope of your final prepositional phrase in layman's terms? Is it things? Is the book in layman's terms, or is it what linguists wish they could explain in layman's terms but can't? That's right, the latter. It's what they wish they could explain in layman's terms. Your book is not in layman's terms, then. No, no, my book will be in layman's terms. It's <laughs> it's correcting the fact that linguists are unable to do that. So you have double scope for in layman's terms. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> you want to repeat it then? So what linguists wish they could explain about language in layman's terms in layman's terms? Yeah, that's uh, that's so much better. It's catchy. <laughs> and Doesn't that linguist, violate some parameter or other? As a linguist, are you not unable to explain things in layman's terms? And does this explain why you have not written the book yet? <laughs> that's exactly the problem, isn't it? Can we end it with because reasons? <laughs> <laughs> I think it needs to have a slash in there somewhere. <laughs> slash in layman's terms. What's you know, your book, I, Sherry? It's a trilogy, actually. Oh, good. Because there hasn't been one of those yet, and I feel like there should be a trilogy. And really, the trilogy should have four books, but mine, oddly, only has three, because that's how trilogies do these days, right? Or it should have six <laughs> yeah. or nine or however many they do. I'm also thinking that if, in fact, I ever want promotion again, if I ever want to take this academic thing that I do seriously, I think it's really important not to get too serious about one brand of linguistics. You want to be spread outable, right? So that everyone who sees your CV and your life's work, no matter who looks at it, they'll go, oh yeah, that. Okay. Diversification is what I'm after. As a member of the evil empire, <laughs> I need to write a book called Language, obviously, but because I'm a minimalist, I'm not going to call the book Language. I'm just going to call the book L. Mm. Your first suggestion better, Language, obviously. <laughs> that is a really good suggestion so maybe that is the fourth book in my trilogy i don't know so i'm gonna all call right. the first one just l that's all and because we all understand this to be innate processes it the book actually doesn't have to have any content of its own you just open it and you just know because it's all just subsumable under l so if you can't work that out <laughs> then maybe you shouldn't be in linguistics is it going to be an actual L or is it going to be the Greek letter lambda? Ooh, maybe the outline of a lambda, because we don't want to get too, you know. Yeah. Why not, specific. why not, since it's a trilogy, and since you want to reach the lucrative second language learning market, make it L1 and then the second volume L2? <laughs> Wait, she might have plans for the title of the second volume already. <laughs> I'm, I'm right. predicting it's going to be A-N-G. <laughs> So this really, this is clearly turning into some kind of trilogy of trilogies here or something. <laughs> but my second book was going to be stepping away from the evil empire in case that doesn't do for my outside readers for my file. I think I need something postmodern. So I'm going to call it language and insert a silent Q and a silent seven. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going to insist that it is pronounced language, or I'm going to insist that you pronounce it a different way every time you mention it. And then the third book, language, has a colon. And then because I want to be in the Rebel Alliance, and I do think it's probably numbers all the way down, I'm going to write language, put a colon, then I'm going to release my cat under the keyboard of my computer and just let it walk around some. And whatever it writes <laughs> is going to be the title of the book. And mm. that's all I need to say. So once again, there need be no content generated by me because the mathematicians are in charge of it, not me. So I think Sherry has the plan most likely to result in a finished book. <laughs> so good for you, Sherry. I'm actually done with them already. Yeah. 
<laughs> She's finished already. That's right. And I'd like to point out that if you do expand it to a trilogy of trilogies, that would be because language is recursive. I probably need to start a journal. Here you, of course. <laughs> now you just need a printer to give you some beautiful cover designs and you're finished. Guilt letters. I think I need to have guilt letters. You've already offered me the contract, right? So I can hold you to that. In theory, yeah. Well, what I offered you was actually uh, some kind of an underlying representation, and I'm not sure what it's going to come out as <laughs> on the surface. It may not <laughs> it may not turn out to be a contract that's signable or uh, remunerative, but you'll know deep in your heart that you had a contract. Yeah. <laughs> I believe there's a highly ranked funding filter. <laughs> <laughs> that's possible. All right. That's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Thanks to our guest, Tim, for hanging out with me and the rest of the Ling Nerds. Join us next time when we tackle linguistic parenting. Do kids exhibit better behavior aims when the parents provide more phrase structure? Nothing? <laughs> Usually I at least get a groan. All right. I believe we're all here. I'm never all here, but... Okay. We are each here. <laughs> Man, I love hanging out with linguists. <laughs> I avoid semanticists at all costs. <laughs> So I just got an echo of Sherry's voice. Voice. Oh, and myself. Oh, and myself. Okay. Okay. You really shouldn't do these like <laughs> under the underpass or in the shower or wherever it is. <laughs> in the echo chain. The echo chain. Everybody ready for evidence rebuts Chomsky's theory of language learning? Woo! Yes. <laughs> okay. So this is me. So I'll start. I have a fairly long introduction because I have nothing else to say. <laughs> I was over here anagramming Chomsky just to see if I could get anything better than my shock. I got my shock and koi schmuck. Koi schmuck. Okay. <laughs> okay, did you guys all think about this ahead of time? Kinda. I did my homework. Not much. As much as Not necessary. Much. As much as necessary is plenty. Way to peter out there. <laughs> How we do it. You could just delete that part. Yeah. In fact, you could delete the whole stupid game. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble saying scientific American because I always want to say speculative grammarian. <laughs> and I can see why I've confused those two. <laughs> mm, indeed. We really shouldn't say it because then, you know, cat's out of the bag and that sort of thing. And so, But that's what it's for. Everybody knows that. Uh-oh. It's the cat release alarm. <laughs> oh, okay. And I would just like to say that the minute I actually said out loud what the thing is actually for, that's when I got dropped from the conversations. So it's powerful, whatever it is. <laughs> the black helicopters are probably on their way for me right now. I thought maybe we hadn't. <laughs>